Our scripture for today is found in Acts 22:25 to 23:11. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the, citizen, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had, been, he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in in the council, Brother, I am a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there was no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if the spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for you have... For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The word of the Lord. Good morning again. Um, Last week, we began what will be a 20-week study through the New Testament book of Romans, And we began that study by considering just who the recipients of this letter to the Romans were. Just who were these Roman Christians uh, that the letter was addressed to. And in that study, we learned that these Romans were of a number, about a hundred, mostly Gentile converts living in a pagan society in Rome, surrounded by about a million people in the very cosmopolitan city of Rome. And these hundred or so Gentile, mostly Gentile converts were living in the poorest parts of Rome. They were not people of 
great reputation. And they were people that had little to no monotheistic religious heritage. There were very few, if any, Jews among their number who could instruct them in the Old Testament or teach them the Hebraic scriptures. They had no access to Christian scripture yet at that time. There was no gospel account of the life of Jesus that had yet been written. So try to imagine that. Try to put yourself into their shoes, if you will. A small, fledgling group of new Christian converts with no heritage to draw on, no Bible to preach from. And then imagine the spiritual vitality that would have coursed into that community upon the receipt of the book of Romans. To go from having no Bible to having Romans of all books of the Bible would have been an electric shock to the faith of the church gathered there. Because within Romans, we have a summation of the whole of the scriptures. Romans details for its readers the story of God's creation and then the ways in which we as his creatures, his preeminent creatures, have rebelled against him, turned our backs on him, sought our own course, sought to make ourselves happy rather than simply allow God to be in charge of our happiness. Romans then goes into how it is that God sought to, in the face of that rebellion, recreate the world, to recapitulate his creation in the image of his own son, to put to rest this rebellion once for all, to triumph over it by way of love, and to usher people back into relationship with him. As well, the book of Romans then holds out hope, a picture of the trajectory of this story consummating in a new creation, in a world where people are connected to their maker, in a world where people have life in their maker and are sustained in their maker and are one with their maker. This is the great gift of the book of Romans, and there's little doubt that Romans is the primary reason why the church in Rome survived. Why it is that this small, fledgling group even had an opportunity to live through the dreadful persecution that would come for them within less than a decade of receiving this great book. In less than a decade of receiving the book of Romans, the small church in Rome was treated horribly. The emperor Nero threw many of the Christians to the lions in a public display of embarrassment and shame. He crucified many of the Christians in the early church. And yet, this church was ready for that moment. This church was ready to face the difficulty of that kind of persecution with a kind of uncompromising knowledge of who they were. The church in Rome, when the persecution came for them, she knew that she was in Christ. She knew that she was of Christ. She knew that she had been imparted the very life of Christ and so was not shocked when the sufferings of Christ came for her. As we come into the Christian faith, that's part of what it means to be established in the identity of Christ, that we would actually anticipate 
that the sufferings of Christ, that the persecution of Christ would find its way into our biographies, find its way into our life story. And so these Christians were ready for that moment. They'd had that uncompromising identity imparted to them. And so what I want us to do today is to consider the person through whom God primarily imparted that identity, namely the author of this great epistle to the Romans, this great letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul. And I want us to consider who he is, who is this Paul, and what was his specific motivation for writing this letter to the Romans? What was his agenda? What was he after in writing this letter to the Romans? Paul had longed for some time to travel to Rome. He'd longed for some time to be there in person to minister to the Christians in Rome. But he writes this letter, he writes Romans as something of a stopgap, giving them his words in lieu of himself, at least until he's able to arrive. So what exactly is he meaning to give them? Who is Paul and what is his agenda with the Romans? Well, we begin to get an answer to both of those questions in the opening lines of this great letter to the Romans, wherein Paul introduces himself to the people in Rome. And we read this in the first verses of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what ought to jump out to us immediately here, beyond the fact that Paul writes in crazy run-on sentences, and we'll encounter that over the course of the book of Rome, so be ready. I'm going to have my best reading voice prepared for it. What jumps out to us immediately here is that Paul scarcely can speak of himself in the introduction of himself to the people in Rome. That Paul, as he's going about introducing himself, finds that he can only speak of the Lord Jesus. Right? This is Paul now commending his ministry to the people in Rome. These Christians in Rome have not met Paul yet, remember. And he is speaking to them on the basis of his credibility, why it is that they should listen to him, why it is that they should pay attention to him. And he mentions almost nothing of himself. It's as though he's saying, the only basis for you trusting me is that I am with him, that I am with the Lord Jesus, that I come as a representative of him. Indeed, that's what Paul says. His whole identity is bound up in proclaiming the gospel. He says he's been set apart to proclaim Jesus, to proclaim the good news about 
Jesus. There's nothing in this introduction from Paul that would attempt to capitalize on this opportunity of being the first credentialed minister to come upon this new church in this new region. There's nothing here from Paul that would seek to expand his territory or expand his influence or build the Pauline brand, as it were. Paul is doing here true evangelism in this sense. A true evangelist sets people free even from the evangelist. The true gospel of the Lord Jesus does not accumulate loyalty to its ministers. The true gospel of Jesus liberates people to be connected to God and follow the Lord Jesus where he would lead them. A true evangelist disadvantages themselves for the sake of the people, points to Jesus to such degree that they even lose credibility or lose standing in and among the people. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. There's no subtle attempt snuck into these words to grow his own name. And this way of ministering, this true sort of evangelism, it characterizes all of the letters of Paul, all of the New Testament letters of Paul. As he writes to each of the churches, He is always pointing to Jesus in this exclusive way. He's a true evangelist in that sense, liberating people even from himself. There's a kind of pseudo-Christian evangelism that is all too common in our day that seeks to make converts to my church, seeks to make converts to my theological stream, seeks to make converts to my way of thinking. You have to read the authors that I read. You have to pray in the way that I pray. You have to worship in the way that I worship. It's pseudo-Christian evangelism because it's the antithesis of freedom. It's putting burdens on people to match their way of walking with God to your way of walking with God. It's trying to put yourself in a place of control in people's lives. Don't hear me here denigrating in any way the practice of hospitality. Every church should open its doors and welcome people in and lay down its life for the sake of others and earnestly desire that people would find a place of rest and home there. But there's no true evangelism in connecting people to yourself, in inspiring loyalty to yourself, in creating sycophants who are then dependent on your words or spiritual care in order to have their life in Christ. True evangelism sets people free. It sets people free. Follow the Lord Jesus to wherever it is that he leads you, wherever that may be, however that may look, whatever stream that may take you to, follow him. True evangelism sets people free even from the evangelist. That's why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, for example, writes this in the opening chapter. He says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, this is not about me. This is not about any minister. He says, if any of us come to you and preach any other sort of gospel, he says, if I myself come back to you at some future date and try to make some change, try to lead you to put your hope in someone else other than the Lord Jesus Christ, throw me out. Throw us out. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus or bust. There is no loyalty to any particular minister, any particular church. There's loyalty and fidelity to the Lord Jesus alone. Too many people, I think, in our day, too many people in the Christian world find themselves given in loyalty to a particular minister, to a particular church, even to a particular community of people. Say, well, my church has begun perhaps teaching some other gospel than the gospel of the Lord Jesus, offering as hope something else than the Lord Jesus, but this church is my home. This church is where I'm connected. These people are my friends. Or I've noticed that my pastor has been offering out as hope some other source, some other resource for the life of faith, but... He's so funny. <laughs> He's so entertaining. Uh, I feel so good. Right. And we give ourselves to certain ministers or certain ministries apart from that fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes, may it not be so. He writes to the Corinthians again in chapter 3. For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I want you all to promise me something, promise the leaders of this church something. That if the teaching and leading of this church should at any point stray from the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we ever begin to offer some source of hope other than the Lord Jesus in his person himself, promise me that you will move on. There are other churches in this city that are offering the Lord Jesus Christ. Have fidelity to that gospel alone. Seek out where you can be fed true food alone. Have no misguided loyalty to any other minister or church. The Apostle Paul wants to impart this kind of single-minded fidelity to the Roman church, to the people in Rome. He knows that that is where their safety lies. It's not in fidelity to him. It's so tempting to believe that when we believe that we're commissioned as ministers of the gospel or even just as a ministry of believers, the priesthood of all believers, when we believe that we've been given something worthwhile, it's so tempting to believe that attaching people to me or to my church or to my ministry would be the safest place for them. And it's not true. Each one of us goes astray. Each one of us loses our way. We need to be less convinced of our own 
righteousness, less convinced of our own trustworthiness. Jesus alone is trustworthy. He alone is the one that will not lead people astray, who will walk the path of the Lord. This is why Paul writes the book of Romans. This is why he wants to visit the church in Rome. It's not to scoop these people up under his pastoral ministry brand. It's to point them to Jesus, to offer them Jesus. The question then that gets begged is, what is it that has made Paul so loyal to the gospel of Jesus? What has convinced Paul that pointing people to Jesus in this kind of uncompromising way is the source of security and safety for the people of God, will be the only way that the church will survive. Well, over the course of Paul's ministry, we see him living out exactly what he has said in this regard. His loyalty to Jesus, his call for others to practice that kind of radical fidelity to Jesus, it's not mere lip service. It's deep down in his bones, and it shows itself in his biography. Luke, who records the acts of the first apostles in the New Testament, records for us the life and ministry of Paul, and we see Paul living out that kind of radical fidelity to Christ, even as that loyalty to Christ begins to cost him dearly. Paul is a person who was born into prestige. Paul is a person who was born a Roman citizen, as we read a moment ago. Paul is a person who was educated in the finest Jewish schools. He was a person, as he grew up to become a man, he was known then as Saul of Tarsus. He had a place of position and prominence and comfort. Many people looked to him as one who was deeply connected to God and therefore worthy of honor and loyalty, and he had quite a following. He had disciples that would hang on his every word, disciples that would do his bidding, do whatever he asked of them, even perhaps kill for him. And we see that recorded in the book of Acts. Paul has everything. And his conversion to Christianity begins to cost him these things, increasingly cost him these things. The more that he preaches Christ, the less position he has. The more that he ministers the gospel of Christ, the less esteem he has. In fact, he begins to be persecuted. He begins to be denigrated. He has entire communities turn on him. He loses his friends. He loses his comforts. He loses his VIP Standing, He finds that far fewer people are listening to him. The scope and influence of his life diminishes. He goes from being an eminent somebody to an absolute nobody. This fidelity to Christ leads him by all accounts, by all measures of human vision, into a worthless sort of life into the sort of life that's overlooked, the sort of life that's forgotten, the sort of life that has no payoff in the day-to-day. And he spends all of that, he loses all of that for this kind of single-minded fidelity to 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, the way that Paul finally makes it to Rome is in chains. He'd been longing to go to Rome. The way that he finally makes it there is as a prisoner. After writing this letter to the Romans, he travels to Jerusalem as he said that he would in the letter. This is around A.D. 58. And Paul travels to Jerusalem to minister there among the Christians there and disperse some monies to Christians who are in need there. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, there is an angry mob that's been stirred up against Paul. These are the religious leaders in Jerusalem who are angry at Paul for the same reasons that they were angry at Jesus, because Paul is preaching freedom. Freedom is an enemy of ministry. Freedom is an enemy of ministries. Freedom is an enemy of ministers. Because freedom undermines control. It undermines systems of religion where people can be subjugated and put in chains. It undermines the abuse of power where people in authority can have others do their bidding. Paul is preaching a gospel of freedom in the same way that Jesus preached a gospel of freedom. A priesthood of believers where each person is connected directly to God through the mediation of Jesus Christ and has no need for any other human mediator, has no need for any other human minister. Paul is, in essence, preaching himself out of importance. And what's more, he's preaching the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem out of importance. He's undermining their whole system of control. And so they're terrified. They're angry. He's threatening that they would undergo the same kind of costs that he has undergone in his life as he's lost that standing, lost that power, lost that control over other people. And so this angry mob is stirred up against him, and they bring charges against him. And Paul is placed on trial, captured by the Roman authority in Jerusalem as someone who's causing all of this problem in the Jewish community. He's placed on trial, and when he's given opportunity to give his defense for why it is that he's innocent of these charges, he doubles down. He's been charged as one who's preaching a gospel of Jesus Christ that would undermine the religious system. And when they say, what do you have to say for yourself? He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ that would undermine the religious system. He takes the opportunity to say exactly what he's been saying all along. And now in a public forum and to much wider effect. And of course, this only further infuriates the religious leaders. But Paul does something else here in that moment when asked to give his public defense. And this is quite shrewd. He mentions in that defense that he is a Roman citizen. Now, why does he do that? Well, there's an immediate reason. He's about to be whipped. And you're not allowed to whip Roman citizens. I think I might mention it as well. But we know that there's another reason in Paul's mind, a more important reason in Paul's mind, why he mentions that he's a Roman citizen. And that is because he's trying to get to Rome. Paul has been desperately longing to go to Rome that he might impart this identity of Christ to these Roman Christians that he's written this letter to. 
and he still has that on his mind. Try to imagine that. Try to put yourself in that position. This man's life hangs in the balance. The leaders, the religious leaders of the day, the people of influence and position in Jerusalem are calling for his head. They want him dead. And what Paul is primarily thinking about is how he might sneakily navigate his way to Rome to press the gospel even further into the Mediterranean, to have more people hear about the freedom that they have in Christ, to have more people undermine this system of religious authority that would oppress people and hold them in chains. Even while Paul is in chains, he is only thinking of how he can liberate more people from those chains, from all the chains that consume us. The gospel consumes him. It dominates his mind and his heart. There's nothing that he can spend, nothing in his life, no cost that can deter him from this confidence in the freedom and joy and worthwhileness of life in Christ. It's center mind for him continually. And we know that this is on Paul's mind. We know that Rome is on Paul's mind because there's a small line included here from the recorder of this story, Luke, that tells us that that very night after this initial trial of Paul, Paul receives a vision from the Lord Jesus in which Jesus promises him, just as you have proclaimed my name here in Jerusalem, so too you must proclaim my name in Rome. Jesus visits Paul and says, what you are thinking about, what you are meditating on, what you long for, you will have it. I will give it to you. Can I, can I ask all of you, can I ask all of us, does the gospel of Jesus Christ, does the good news of Jesus consume you in the way that it consumes Paul? When your life is squeezed, when the stress of life threatens to cost you in some way, where does your mind wander as you dream of better moments, as you dream of better days? Where does your mind go? Where's the source of hope when life is overwhelming you? Is it Christ? Is it the good news of Jesus? Is it the freedom that we have in him? Your answer to that, some of you, may be yes. Your answer to that, some of you, may be no. But whatever your answer to that question, doesn't it compel us to wonder what made Paul this way? How does someone be so consumed by the good news of Jesus as to be only thinking of him in this moment of great peril, when their life is most squeezed, most threatened, when everything is on the line, there's still this all-consuming thought of the freedom and joy and life that is in Christ. What made Paul that way? Why is he so gripped by Jesus and the news of what he has done? Well, there's no real mystery, actually. 
to that. It's simply that Jesus is everything, don't you know? Jesus is the bread of life without end. Jesus is living water that we would thirst no more. Paul has lived enough as an adult. He's lived enough years of life without Christ to know that way of being haunted, of being haunted in every moment, somehow in the recess of your mind, that everything that you have might be lost, of being haunted by the thought that all of your possessions, all of your friendships are tenuous, that your marriage may not last, of being haunted by that exhausting madness of trying to hold everything together, of clutching after the good things of life, trying to keep it all together, trying to not lose too much, struggling in every moment to somehow make yourself happy, to make this life bearable, repressing all thoughts that haunt the recesses of your mind, all those lingering questions that make you wonder if this struggle is even worth it. He knows that way of being all too well. He has experienced it over the course of a long adult life prior to his conversion, and then he has had his life interrupted. Paul had his way of being interrupted, and upon seeing Christ, he was rescued into this radical new source of freedom. Do you know what a relief it is to believe that you can lose everything that you have and everything that you are and still have everything? Do you know what a scandalously freeing way to live that is? To know that all of the twists and turns of the story of your life are a conspiracy of love to do you good? Do you know how much that changes your experience of every day? To know that even death cannot rob from you what you have been given, that all of the riches of heaven are in Christ Jesus and for you, that he is ever for you, that no ministry, no politician, no community, no relationship, no injustice can possibly separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus that has been lavished on you. Paul came to understand that kind of freedom, that kind of joy. He embraced that reality. Hear this. All you creatures, you were made to know Jesus. That's why you exist. And he is offering himself freely to all of us. He is offering all that he is freely to all of us. The Apostle Paul's radical fidelity to the gospel of Jesus is not something to esteem or try to live up to. It's something that's been given. It's something that's been poured out. 
God has poured out his love in the earth. He's poured out the life of his son in the earth. He's given us the spirit of Christ. It's ours to receive. This freedom is ours to live in. It's a gift to enjoy, not a calling to climb up into. The good news of Jesus is something to slump into, something to rest in. This is the grace of God, that the one who made you is for you, and that all your acts of rebellion have not convinced him to turn elsewhere, that he's triumphed over your rebellion by forgiveness and love, that your acts of rebellion have not talked him out of relationship with you, and that he has determined that he will not be God without us. He will only be God with us. This is the freedom that Paul came to know, the freedom that Paul came to love. It's the freedom that he treasured and preached over the course of his life. Within days of receiving that vision from Jesus that he would preach in Rome in the same way that he had preached in Jerusalem, a 40-person mob gathered And made an oath with one another that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. Thankfully, Paul's nephew overheard this plot and informed the authorities and the Roman officials, escorted Paul by cover of night out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. And Paul was imprisoned there in Caesarea for two years, A.D. 58 through A.D. 60, still longing to make it to Rome, but now stuck in a prison under an unjust governor, the governor Felix, who was holding Paul there simply because he wondered if someone might pay a ransom to release him. And eventually Paul, again, quite shrewdly, appealed to his Roman citizenship and appealed to Caesar that his case might be tried in Rome before Caesar. Again, cleverly finding some way, any way, that he can make it to Rome and minister to the church that is fledgling there. He wants to be there and with them. And so it's agreed that Paul will be sent to Rome, and just before he's sent to Rome, he has one last opportunity in Caesarea to plead his case before King Agrippa, who is the vice ruler over Judea for the Roman Empire. King Agrippa, a Jew himself, who has been put in place over Judea by the Roman Empire, happens to be passing through Caesarea, and Paul is given an audience with him. He only has a few moments with this king as he passes through. But Paul does not waste these moments. He says to King Agrippa, Recorded in Acts chapter 26. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa says to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul answers, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul is standing in chains. A journey to Rome as a prisoner to face trial is before him. 
And he knows in the depth of his soul, if this king would only hear and receive this Jesus that I have known, he would be as free as I presently am. If you would only hear and receive this Jesus that the Apostle Paul has known, you would be as free as he was. All of the riches in heaven are in Jesus, and he is for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of your Son. We thank you for the ministry of Christ that is ours. We thank you for the freedom that is in him. We thank you that you are not a controlling, domineering God, and that you would undermine the abusive and controlling and domineering authorities of this world. Lord, teach us the way of your Son. Fill us with his Spirit that no matter the injustice or difficulty or stress or pain of this life that we might endure, we would live in the joy and freedom of what we have in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.